0: Today's reading is from Revelation 2 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. All right, and as you're seated, let me pray. Father, would you strengthen us through this today, your scriptures? Would you strengthen us today by your Spirit? Would you, God, we ask? Open our eyes that we might behold you for who you are, that we might have our ears opened, that we would hear your truth, and that we would have our hearts opened, uh, that we might believe, Lord, that the lives that we live would glorify you. It's to that end that we pray, God, that you'd be glorified in our midst, that you'd be glorified in our city, that you'd be glorified in this world, and that people would come to know you for who you are. So we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So this morning, we are going to continue on with this little series that we have, like I said last week, between the end of Galatians and the beginning of Proverbs in July. This little series, we're talking uh, about what the Bible says about a number of different topics. This morning, what the Bible says about faith and work. Um, the way that it's going to come across is actually going to be more grounded in faithfulness in our work. And so we'll talk about it from that angle, and you'll see what I mean as we go. Um, the way we're going to do it, as you just heard read from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, uh, we're going to talk about the church in Smyrna, which is the modern city of Izmir in Turkey. If you've ever been there, you may or may not have known that that is the ancient biblical city of Smyrna that was written about. It's the only one of the seven churches that's still kind of in the way that it was then, uh, or stands the way that it did then. And so you can go and, and, and see that. It's still a city that exists, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and the reason that I think this little letter to this City in what is now Turkey this little letter from Jesus of encouragement the reason I think it is so profoundly applicable to us in our day is that it was a wealthy city that was really suffering under the pressing weight of conforming to the broader culture around it it was a wealthy city it was an influential city it was a populated city it was a cultural creating kind of city and we'll talk about all those things But they were being pressured to conform to the broader culture around them. And so, this morning, we're going to talk about really three things that we're looking at. It's not really an outline. I wish it was that organized. It's not really an outline. It's kind of three ideas that we're going to hit. And you'll see these as we move through it. But we're going to talk about the cultural pressure to conform. We're going to talk about burning incense to Caesar. And what I mean when I say that. And what we mean when we say that. And then how we can remain faithful to Jesus in any circumstance in life. But particularly with regard to our work. So, the... Pressure to conform culturally to the world around us, uh, burning incense to Caesar, what we mean by that, and then how we can remain faithful to Jesus, specifically talking about our career, our vocation, our work that we do. Uh, whether you're a student who's training for that or whether you're a professional now or whether you're at home taking care of kids, whatever that would be, my hope is that this actually gets to the heart of what it means to live in the city of Vancouver and be a faithful follower of Jesus. And so that's how we're going to look at this. Now, before we jump into the little bit where Jesus writes this encouraging letter to the church in Smyrna, we kind of have to figure out how do we get here in Revelation? What is actually going on and why are we talking about it in this way? So let me just kind of spend some time talking about that. Um... John the Apostle wrote the uh, book of Revelation, and he was pastoring a church in this region at this time. And so he knew these people in these churches. At least he knew some of them, and they all knew of him. John the Apostle, uh, the guy that we read about in, in, uh, in the Gospels, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. This is who we're talking about when we're talking about John. Um, John was the Apostle. He's, he's there at the end of the first century pastoring in this area. And so this we can locate at the end of the first century, which is all happening in that region under the rule of the Roman Empire. The rule of the Roman Empire is currently being ruled at this time by a guy named Domitian. We'll talk about him a little bit. Domitian was the Caesar who was giving leadership to the empire at that time. And everything that's happening in the church that we read in Revelation is all happening under the rule and the authority of Caesar, whose name was Domitian. Um, Historically, we understand that he was a nut job. And I say that, that's that's the technical term. Uh, He believed he was God incarnate. Uh, He believed that he was to be worshipped. He demanded to be called and spoken of as Lord and God. Um, So you were to call him Lord and God. That's how he was to be addressed. Including his wife was to address him as Lord and God. And so, uh, happy Father's Day to the dads. Try that one this afternoon. That's not going to work that well for you, right? He wanted to be called Lord and God. And there was a whole system of worship Uh, That was really developed from the grassroots level that had kind of risen up where he was allowing himself to be worshipped in this sort of deified role that he was in. Now, John, as a follower of Jesus, was obviously not into worshipping the Caesar or offering and paying homage to Caesar in this way. And so John got himself into trouble. John, a faithful follower of Jesus, worships the one true God. He's not going to give himself to this. And so uh, we can see in Revelation 1-9, this is what he tells us. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He says, this is where I'm located as this is all unfolding. He's on the island of Patmos. Um, One of the things that you would hear in this day in the Roman Empire was, the, the political statement that was very charged, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Turns out what the church decided was that actually Jesus is Lord. And so the phrase that we see all the way through the New Testament is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was a massively political statement in this era of history uh, about who the absolute ruler really was. And the the decree of Caesar was that he was Lord. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord. Now, when you say Jesus is Lord and Caesar hears about it, that's a problem. And so this is the problem that John got himself into. It's really a battle over who is going to be worshipped. Um, just so you know, that's not something located at the end of the first century. Here we are in the 21st century. Jesus is Lord is a very political statement. Maybe you don't feel it here, but in other parts of the world. Other parts of the world, like you you go to certain places and they'll allow the church to to grow and thrive to a certain point. But when you declare that Jesus is Lord, they may crush you. This happens around the the world. I've talked with pastors who are in the underground church who talk about Jesus as Lord being the statement that gets them in trouble. Actually, where they're from, the party is Lord. There is no higher ruler than the party. And so you can't declare Jesus is Lord because that means the party is subservient to that. Well, that's not true, they would say. And so then you see persecution happen. Uh, Verses four and five, chapter one of Revelation, John writes, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. See, Demetian thought he was the ruler of kings on earth and they had a pretty good track record for the last 150 or so years where every ruler on earth that opposed them, they just crushed. So he's the ruler of kings on earth. No, no, no. Jesus says he's the ruler of kings on earth. Now, when you tell that to a megalomaniac like Domitian, you get yourself in trouble. And so he freaks out when there's things like this going on. And when John the Apostle leads the church in this subversive worship of Jesus in the midst of their culture, where you say that there is only one Lord, John's leading the church in that kind of context. John gets himself arrested, thrown on the island of Patmos, which is this rocky island in the Mediterranean that... The Romans would send political dissidents and and just troublemakers. They would send them there. This is what happens, and this is why John is on the island of Patmos in the first place. Uh, If you want to hint just in terms of, I'm not going to talk about this much at all, but if you want to understand Revelation, um, you've got to think about it in two ways. One is that the subject of Revelation is actually Jesus, and that the context of Revelation is quite pastoral. It's not something that you read, you know, with your, you know, the 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 weirdest lens that you could possibly put on and go. Let's just look at some freaky stuff. That's not Revelation, actually. It is a little bit odd. It's prophetic. It's apocalyptic. It has a different uh, way of communicating things, but it was actually very pastoral. And so, what happens is when we rip it out of that context and we try to make it about something else, we come up with all sorts of weird charts and timelines. So, don't be a chart timeline. Okay. Anyways, you okay? All right, it's going to get worse, just so you know. It's not going to get better. If you've been around for a while, you're like, yeah, I know. Just keep going now. Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. Let me read this. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. He's writing a letter to these seven churches. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. We've seen that. Now move to verse, the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. Pay attention. Look at this. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This revelation is about Jesus. It comes by way of Jesus, and it comes to John for the benefit of the churches that are mentioned. Now, at this point, our man John, like I said, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He's likely 80 plus years of age, and he's been exiled there because he would not worship Domitian as Lord. He served Jesus as Lord and he was not going to compromise that truth. That's why all the apostles were already dead and he's the only one there because they all wouldn't compromise the truth and so they got their lives taken from them. Verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner with you, our partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Look at, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he's there. It's not like he got really excited and robbed some banks and he got to put in prison. He's there because of the persecution that was coming from the empire. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. For what he was teaching and preaching, he was removed from his pastoral oversight in the churches and put on the island of Patmos. It says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, who we're talking about today. To Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then what happens is, the scene shifts and it moves us into his first vision. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And look at this, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Pay attention to that, because it's important to note that Jesus was there. Clothed with a long robe. The golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) He sees a vision of the exalted Jesus. It's a holy moment. It's a transformative moment. He sees Jesus. Later on in verse 20, it's going to explain that the seven golden lampstands were the seven churches that were named and the seven cities that we named. Jesus is there, and he's in the midst of them. These were words coming from the king, not a distant king who rules from a far-off palace sitting on his throne, but a king who stands with his people in the midst of their tribulation and trial. In the midst of their difficulties and pains. He's there with them in the midst of their sorrows and their troubles. This is who King Jesus is. And that's why it's so important that we note that he was there among them. He's with them. Christ City. he's with us today. His promise is that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Sometimes that's all I have to hang on to. I think, boy, I would have forsaken me a long time ago. <laughs> he isn't going anywhere. That's the broad context that it's happening and Now, narrow it down to the city of Smyrna, to the church in the city of Smyrna. He wanted them to know that he was with them. Jesus wanted the church in Smyrna. He says, write this letter down so that they know I'm with them. I want to encourage them. Because in Smyrna, apparently it was not easy to serve him. Apparently there was a problem going on in the city, maybe multiple problems, that were making it difficult to rightly serve God. It wasn't easy to serve them there because of the cultural pressure to conform to the pattern of the age. Um, Jesus writes these letters to the seven churches and sends them through his messenger John He sends them on. Seven churches. There's actually only two that he he only commends. He only encourages. He doesn't call out anything that's a problem. Smyrna was one of them where there were no problems in that sense. He's only commending them for their faithfulness. And he's only encouraging them to keep persevering. There's, I think there's one of the churches that, that, that he had nothing good to say to. So that would have been difficult to hear. But Smyrna was a happy church. It's just that they were happy in the midst of their suffering. Jesus was pleased with them. That's what it says in verse 9. I know your tribulation... And your poverty, but you're rich. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And so here's the question I actually want this question to really guide us and focus our time, uh, the rest of our time together. Why was the church in Smyrna in poverty? Like, I know sometimes it's easy to just read over this, but do you ever stop and just go, okay, so I, I know your tribulation and poverty, but why were they in poverty? Had something gone on? I don't know. There's actually two words uh, in, in the Greek that the New Testament was written in that you could talk about being poor in poverty. One of them is uh, kind of usually translated poor, which would mean that you're, you kind of have nothing on top of what you need. You're poor. You're without. But poverty is like you've got nothing. And that's the word that is behind this. So it's not just they were poor, it's that they were destitute. Abject poverty, nothing. Trying to figure out how to put Food in stomachs of families. <laughs> That's kind of the poverty that we're talking about. I think is what he's really getting at. Um, the ancient city of Smyrna, uh, apparently beautiful city. Never been there. It was a long time ago. Ancient city of Smyrna was apparently beautiful. Uh, it had actually burned down or something and been destroyed, and so they rebuilt it. So it was actually quite organized. It was an engineered city. Uh, it was carefully planned. The streets were symmetrical, which was something that was not normal in that era. Um, people liked that city. The, the streets were lined with heathen god temples, like temples to heathen gods. And so we know that it was a very religious city. There was lots of worship there, ornate, beautiful temples that were built to worship different gods. Uh, running down the middle of the city was what was called Golden Street. And at the end of that street was a mountain where the temple of Zeus stood. So there's some context for what this city would have been like. So, uh, from an aesthetic point of view, I think it was, it was apparently quite beautiful and scenic. Um, kind of like the city of Vancouver. You don't think it's beautiful here? Okay. What's the fr- I mean, first thing your family and friends say when they come visit? Oh my gosh, it's beautiful here. You say, Yeah, I know. I live here. Ha. <laughs> right? It's beautiful here. This was apparently a beautiful city. It was also on the sea. It had a port and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, I mean, it was a beautiful place. Um, it was also a very political city and a very religious city. Kind of like Vancouver. You know, I don't know, It was a really religious city. Yeah, it's a really religious city. I remember talking to one of my friends uh, who's, who's not a follower of Jesus. He moved here from Northern Ireland, from uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland. He moved here from Northern Ireland. I know if I screwed that up, some Irish person's going to be mad at me. He moved here from Northern Ireland and he was like, how is it that you've got like a Buddhist temple, a Sikh temple, a Christian church, a mosque, some sort of thing that doesn't believe in anything, but it believes in everything. It's over 43rd and Oak. Uh, it's called unity. It literally, I don't really understand it. He's like, how does this coexist and you're not killing each other? He's like, the Protestants and Catholics can't even get along where I'm from. And I'm like, yeah, I know. This is a very religious city. Smyrna was like that. Uh, this was, uh, Smyrna was the kind of city where, where uh, it was upstream culture-creating kind of city where, where things would happen there and then it would kind of get filtered out, just like Vancouver. Uh, it was a leading city in the province, just like Vancouver. I actually met with one of my pastor friends From Abbotsford this week, we needed to get together and talk about some stuff with church planting and different things that are going on. So we picked a point halfway. So both of us went to Langley and he immediately apologized for making me leave the city of Vancouver as the cultural elitist that he knows I am. That's what he said. He said, I hate, I know you're in the leading city of Vancouver and thanks for coming into the country to meet one of our lowly pastors from Abbotsford. I told him to be assured I would knock the dust off my feet before I returned. It was going to be okay. And he actually told me something I didn't know. He said even people from Abbotsford looked down on Langley. So that's what he said. (laughs) It was an elitist kind of city. Uh, Smyrna was about 55 kilometers north of Ephesus. Ephesus and it had a thriving port, and it was on one of the main roadways. So that meant because of the port and the roadway, it was a a trade point. There was lots of commerce that went on there. It was a rich city. It was beautiful. It was wealthy. It was proud. They had a good relationship politically with Rome, um, and they wanted to keep it that way. They, in fact, built one of the first temples to um, to the goddess Roma like a couple hundred years before. Like, they wanted to keep a good relationship with Rome, the superpower, in this way. Uh, on the coins, actually, in, um, in, in Smyrna, they had something stamped on them. It said, first city of Asia in size and beauty. So that's how you know they're like Vancouver, because we would do something like that. First city in British Columbia in, in size and beauty. Interesting, though, they took a lot of pride in being first, which I think gives you a little insight into why Jesus reveals himself as the first and the last. Um, They also, like I said, had been destroyed by uh, 580 BC, and they re-engineered and they rebuilt. They were very proud of their life-out-of-death experience as a city, which I think gives us some insight into why Jesus says not only is he the first and the last, but he is the one who died and came to life. So there's no wasted words with Jesus. Verse eight says into the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. There's something else going on here. He's speaking to the people. So again, I want to ask the question, if they're living in this rich, prosperous, culturally elite kind of city, why are they poor? Why is the church in poverty? Verse nine again, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. Um, The the word translated tribulation here um, essentially means pressure, but it it means like crushing pressure. Um, William Barclay, who's a theologian who knows more about this word than I ever care to know about, he says this, it would evoke in the minds of first century people the picture of a person tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder laid upon him. If that is not the most visceral definition of a word you're ever going to hear, that's... So just imagine a boulder being laid on top of somebody and it's slowly crushing them to death. That's what this word means. It's translated in some places, tribulation or affliction. This is what's going on at the church of Smyrna. They were living under this crushing pressure. Um, Also, please note, the only places in the world where there is persecution and crushing pressure against the move of Christianity are where those Christians have remained faithful and not compromised the truth of the gospel. So they were faithful. Jesus commends them for their faithfulness and what it was like to live under the cultural pressure that was crushing them. The cultural pressure to conform was there, but they didn't. And I believe that's why they were in poverty. The city of Smyrna was famous for Caesar worship, for worshiping Caesar as Lord. Um, The emperor kind of cult scene was very strong there. They even had approval from the Roman government to build a temple for this Very thing. This is what Jay Lockhart said. He said, At first, Caesar worship was simply an idea. Caesar is Lord and God, people said. It was sort of informal worship of Caesar. With the passing of time, it became formalized. Statues of the Caesar were erected throughout the Roman Empire. Altars were constructed if one was to participate in Roman life, even in buying and selling in the marketplace it was mandatory that he come before the statue of Caesar, burn a pinch of incense upon the altar, and proclaim Caesar as Lord and God. He was given a certificate that included that he had worshipped Caesar. That certificate gave him the right to go in the marketplace and buy and sell, get a job, and participate in Roman life in other ways. So if you wouldn't do that, it would have been very difficult to have any sort of business success. Why was the church impoverished? because they were not willing to bow a knee, kiss a ring, or offer a pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord, because Jesus is Lord and no one else. It's actually interesting. Um, One of my scholarly friends sent me some stuff on this so that I could do some reading. What she found for me was an article that talks about how it was not actually the government that imposed this and, and maintained it. It was actually the cultural elites of the society that made them still do it. So it was beneficial for them to cozy up to the emperor and to have a good reputation. So they imposed this upon people in their marketplace that you couldn't buy, sell, trade, or otherwise unless you offered worship to Caesar. So what does this have to do with faith and work in Vancouver in 2019? Um, Well, presumably, the church of Smyrna, in their poverty, were not conforming to the cultural spirit of the age. And because of that, they were facing tribulation, crushing pressure and poverty. They were not going to worship Caesar just so they could have access to the market. Uh, Let me translate that into 21st century words for us. They refused to compromise their faith in Jesus for their career success and advancement. That's what I think it has to do with our faithfulness in our work. The question is, where are the pressures that you feel today coming from, and what are the pressures that you feel in your work? Where are you tempted to give a pinch of incense to the cultural pressures of the day? Uh, There's a guy named Rod Dreher. He wrote a a book that has a great chapter on this. Um, I didn't love the rest of the book, but it has a great chapter, so I'm going to quote from that. His his whole idea is that we need to sort of withdraw from society in some ways. And my whole idea is that we actually need to lean in really hard. So like the whole concept and the thesis of his book, I wasn't going to agree with as a church planter guy. So this is good though. (laughs) Probably didn't need to explain that. That's fine. This is a great chapter in his book called the Benedict option. This is what he says. The temptation to sell out the faith for the sake of self-protection is by no means an abstract threat. We may not yet be at the point where Christians are forbidden to buy and sell in general without state approval, but we are on the brink of entire areas of commercial and professional life being off limits to believers whose consciences will not allow them to burn incense to the gods of the age. And I have the easiest job in the room as it relates to this. Like, if this becomes illegal, well, I'm... I'm kind of already pre-programmed into the John on the Island of Patmos thing, right? There's a lot of audio online of what I believe. Like, they don't have to question that. Um, for you, though, the temptation may be different. Hey, look, for pastors, it's no different. Let me, I, should, I should retract that. There are lots of pastors who've compromised the truth of the gospel to burn incense at the altar of Caesar or the spirit of the age. It's, it's destructive to the church. It's very sad. So I guess we're not impervious to that, but that's fine. I still have the easiest place to live this out. Where are the temptations for you to bow to the cultural pressures that are going on all around you? That's, that's what I want to ask. High school students, college students, where are the teachers and professors you have pushing on your Christian faith and suggesting that that's nonsense and you should follow along with the spirit of the age? Where is that happening? Because it's happening in every school and on every campus in the city. Parents, where are you feeling that right now? Right? You're feeling that because your kids come home and go, this is what I was taught today. And you're like, "Woo, okay, interesting. And oddly enough, I actually was talking with Matt about this this morning. Matt, director of youth, Matt, I was talking to. And he said, it's very interesting that a lot of kids uh, in high school age have a more conservative view on some of these social things than their parents do because they've seen some of the nonsense that it's led to. Plus, they don't have any other c- cultural pressures really uh, in the workplace or whatever. They go, like, that's stupid. I don't want to. That's not true. And they're actually able to handle that and have that conversation because they've been brought up in that environment. It's really the millennial, Gen X, and older parents who are uh, shifting very culturally into the spirit of the age. And so, so I, would, I would say, parents, where are you feeling this? Medical professors, uh, professionals, um, teachers, professors. Lawyers, artists, psychologists, social workers, where are you feeling this? Where are you being asked to conform to cultural patterns of what is normal that might contradict your faith? Where is it? Those of you who work for the city of Vancouver, who work for the province of BC, or work for the national government of Canada, do you feel it? Um, bankers and salespeople and tradespeople who are working for corporations with different social values and different agendas, um, where are you being asked to burn a pinch of incense to the altar of the gods of the age? Where is that happening? Like medical professionals, will you support euthanasia? Uh, there was just a conference last week on MAID, they call it Medical Assistance in Dying, which Dr. Margaret Cottle, when she was here teaching on euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, she refused to call it MAID because she was very mad about that. She said, it's nonsense. It's, it's trying to you know, make something nice that's not nice. We're talking about putting someone to death. Where are where are the lines for you in that as a medical professional? What happens if they say, unless you sign off on this, you can't practice medicine, be a nurse, work in this Environment, Teachers, will you uphold a curriculum that demands the disintegration and ideology of our age on gender? Like, have you been asked to offer a pinch of incense? I know I've talked to lots of teachers who are part of Christ City. This is a big deal. How do we handle this moving forward? Lawyers, if the law society declares your christian faith to be at odds with what we understand as justice in the world will you continue practicing law in light of what they say or will you honor god with with what your work looks like there was a law school they tried to start at trinity western it was got it got shut down i think there's lots of things that they could have done better in that but the conversation itself brought a lot of things to the surface about where things are headed artists. If having your work on display in that show or playing music at that festival requires you to wholeheartedly and publicly affirm an entire LGBTQ agenda that's embedded in the arts, will you play and will you put your stuff on display at that show? Will you burn a pinch of incense to get in the door? That's, that's happening in real time. We have friends who are in the arts being asked that question and said, you can't play here if this happens. What will you do? Social workers. There's a traditional understanding of the family and a traditional understanding of sexuality. Is that actually an obstacle to somebody being the foster parent or being able to adopt under the authority of the government? Is that something that you're being asked to figure out? Like, and I know that it is in some ways. What do we do about this? Government workers. I mean, do you have to affirm something or deny something in order to keep your job working for the government? Not, see, not all these pressures are here yet, but a lot of them are coming. Um, and when they come, we need to know, are we willing to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar or will we stand fast and, and say, this isn't what I believe? Right? And you're like, it's Father's Day, Brett, something happy for once, just, just something lighthearted and fun. <laughs> so I'm sorry, this is what's going on today. Will you burn a pinch of incense to Caesar or will you be commended by Jesus for your faithfulness and your poverty, though in brackets, but you're rich? Bankers and salespeople that I know, uh, tradespeople that I've talked to, I know that you feel this because the companies you work for, um, one of them sponsors the Pride Parade. And I know that it's awkward when you say you're not coming and celebrating that and you get looked at weird in your office. Uh, One guy I know uh, who was talking about this with me uh, wouldn't put the pin on at work. See, there's ways to handle this in a very kind, gracious way, and there's also being a jerk about it. So don't be jerks for Jesus. Okay, be kind. There's a way to approach these different, really difficult social issues with wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. We don't, we're not looking for a fight on these things. So don't be that person. And if you are that person, don't tell them you're part of this church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you laugh. I'm like, that's maybe the most serious thing I've said. <laughs> don't, be, don't be a jerk for Jesus in the city of Vancouver. Be somebody who will engage lovingly in a conversation without bending on what you believe. There's a way to handle these things. We don't need to go find a fight. Right? But when it comes down to it, you can explain, look, I, I can't support this. I don't, I don't agree with it. You can say that in a loving way where people may or may not accept it, but you can still say it in a loving way. You can't handle how they react. Every one of the examples I've given are from people I've talked to who are Christians. So you've got to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus in the midst of cultural pressures that are crushing you in the spirit of the age that we live in? Like this, do you have to be a lawyer to feel fulfilled? Like, do you have to be a medical doctor when it comes down to it? You won't sign off on... On medical assistance in death, for instance, do you have to be, and then you fill in the blank for your career and your training, you fill that in. Do you have to do that to feel fulfilled in life? Or would you be okay to set that aside and be retrained in something else so that you don't have to worry about your compromised situation? This is a real question. We talked last week about the, the Genesis mandate, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, the procreation mandate, the cultural mandate, and the stewardship mandate. Look, I don't think you have to be a particular trade or profession in order to fit into that and serve God with who you are and serve him with everything in your life. You don't have to be any of those things. And there's going to come a point where you're going to have to decide. And we as a community here are going to have to decide how we will support people in the interim while they're getting retrained because they can no longer do the thing they used to do. These are real conversations that are coming down the pipe. About 60 years after um, John wrote Revelation, uh, about 60 years later, in the city of Smyrna, one of his disciples was arrested for preaching Jesus. He was arrested particularly for preaching Jesus and not offering incense to Caesar. His name was Polycarp, and he was under the pressure, that crushing pressure, to conform to the world around him. Um, in polycarp's day just like in our day there was actually a very easy way out he was offered a way out um, and he didn't take it let me let me tell you what timothy george who's a church historian said for 86 year old polycarp on sunday february 23rd in the year 155 it was simple the proconsul offered him a way out just take a pinch of incense and place it on the altar in the uh, of the imperial deity a simple gesture, symbolic, that is all. <laughs> then you can go on worshiping Jesus as you like. We'll check you off our list. Just stop reading there on the quote for a second. Do you do you know that there are nations in the world where there are lists? Where people get checked in on to see what they're doing? It might not happen here, and we may never have that happen here. But this is happening around, this is not a 21st or a first century reality only. This is happening in the 21st century. We'll check you off our list. Will you submit to and then fill in the blank? If you will, we'll check you off the list, leave you alone. The proconsul said to Polycarp, take the oath and I'll let you go. Revile Christ. But Polycarp said, for 80 and six years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp offered a prayer in the name of the triune God, and then he was bound. The wood was lit. Like Jesus, who was crucified naked, Polycarp entered the flames without his clothes. But when they saw that his body could not be consumed by fire, the executioner was ordered to stab him with a dagger. And so the ground of Smyrna was made holy by the blood of the martyr. Will you burn incense at the altar of the gods of our age? When I think of Polycarp, I can't think, I can't think of a way where he wasn't impacted by John's ministry and including John's ministry in writing this letter. I think Polycarp knew the words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna where he said in verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I have to think that that was in Polycarp's mind in Smyrna, as he was being executed for not offering incense to Caesar. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And so we've looked at the cultural pressure to conform. We've talked about burning incense to Caesar. How can we remain faithful to Jesus as we do our jobs? How can we remain faithful? Here's how I think we can remain faithful. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. He's in their midst. He's not separate. He has not abandoned us. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. He's in their midst. Um, The Resurrection of Jesus, as it's told in John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 19, says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. He did that after he was crucified and then he was risen. And the disciples are like, what are we going to do? They go get into a meeting. They lock the doors because they're afraid of the authorities that are going to come and get them. And Jesus just shows up in their midst. It's the same language in John chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 21. Jesus is in the midst of the seven churches and he stood in the midst of the disciples. Listen to me. The resurrected Jesus will not abandon his people. The resurrected Jesus will not forego those he has saved and brought to himself. The resurrected Jesus does not ignore the suffering and the plight of his disciples. He knows their tribulation and their poverty, but they're rich. He's with them. When you think that it might be too much to handle, don't forget that He's with you. He's here. He's among us. He's with us. He's with you in your circumstances. He is with you in your problems. He's with you in your pains. He's with you in your sorrow. And He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And He's felt the crushing weight and the pressure the tribulation and affliction, he's felt it. The night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the place of pressing. And as he felt the weight of what God had called him to do, he prayed, Father, maybe I don't need to do this this way. But your will be done, not mine. And Jesus was, as Isaiah tells us, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus felt the crushing weight of the pressures to conform to the world around him and to disobey God. And he felt the crushing pressure of our sin. But he took that so that we would know that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He took that so that we would know that he has welcomed us into relationship with him for now and all eternity. He took that so that we would know what it's like to have new life. He took that so that we could know for certain that we can conquer and be faithful unto death and receive the crown of life. Because of what Christ has accomplished in our place, we can glorify God by the way that we live faithfully into the gospel, into the truth of the gospel, in every aspect of our lives, including our work. And so when we feel the crushing weight and the pressure that comes because of circumstances around us we can turn to a God who identifies with it who understands it and who's promised he's with us Christ said he listened, the resurrected king doesn't abandon his people he's with you Monday to Friday he's with you on your job site he's with you in the things you do our call is to faithfulness his promise is to be with us would you stand as we respond today Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.